0: Brothers and sisters, I ask that you turn with me in your Bibles to our text today that comes from the Gospel of Mark. We're we'll looking at chapter 6 and verses 7 to 13. Mark chapter 6, verses 7 to 13. Mark chapter 6, verses 7 to 13. Hear with me then the reading of God's Word. And He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And He said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Now last week we've seen that Jesus was rejected once again. And this time it was in His own hometown. But in keeping with His mission, Jesus did not allow this to stop Him or to slow Him down. And we know this because we read in verse 6 last week that after He was rejected, He went about preaching in the other villages. Now, up to this point, Jesus is the one who has been doing the preaching and the teaching. But in our text today, we will see that the time has come for the twelve to begin their ministry, which they were called to by Christ for, which was to become fishers of men. If you recall earlier in Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, we read this, And Jesus went up to the mountain, and He called to him, those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. You see, they had to be with Jesus and around Jesus before he would send them out to preach. Right? These twelve had to go through rigorous training in the school of Jesus Christ before they were given the authority to preach and to cast out demons. And the schooling they received was, bar none, the best schooling a man could ever receive. Right? When people leave off to go to seminary nowadays, when young men leave, they, they usually, a lot of times, go out and they find seminaries where professors are that they really respect and they want to sit under. And so they, they go and they follow those professors. But these twelve are given a privilege that no man has today. And that is they sat under the teaching of the Messiah himself. Right? They were schooled by the one whom the message was about and they were taught by his very own lips. What a experience that must have been for them. And yet they still had to be schooled. They still had to be tried. They still had to be tested. Just like men are today we, before we put them up in pulpits to proclaim the mysteries of the gospel and one of the aspects of that training that they had consisted of sitting under Jesus' teaching right throughout the early part of this gospel right there they were hearing parable after parable or they sat under Jesus' teaching as they traveled from synagogue to synagogue and we can be sure that there was countless hours every day that they were being taught by jesus that is not recorded for us in the scriptures Another aspect of their education then came from just being around Jesus. Right? Learning from experience to depend and to trust in Him. Right? Their faith must have grew exponentially after that stormy boat experience. Right? They, their trust had to have increased after seeing all the miraculous deeds that Jesus was performing before their eyes. Right? They had to be humble when they understood that they weren't as smart and as wise as they thought they were, and that they had to just depend on the wisdom of Christ. Right? We got an example of that from earlier in chapter 5, right? with the woman of the discharge of blood. We're told when Jesus stops, they say to her, or they say to him, why are you stopping? Right? He asks, who touched me? They say, why are you asking who touched you? Everyone's touching you. But very quickly they seen that Jesus knew exactly who touched him, and he had a purpose for why he stopped and a plan that He was to execute. And so the apostles had to learn to submit to Jesus in every respect, knowing that He was all-wise and His plan was perfect. And now today in our text, the schooling that they went through is, is now to the point where they can go out and execute the ministry that they were called to from the beginning when Jesus first told them, Follow Me. And so this morning we're going to look today at what this sending out entailed and how it applies to us, the church, today. And we're going to do this under three points based on how Jesus instructs the apostles. Okay, so point one will be what the twelve were to take. What the twelve were to take. Point two will be what the twelve were to do. What the twelve were to do. And our third point will be what the twelve were to say. What the twelve were to say. So point one, what the twelve were to take. Now initially we see here in verse 7 that Jesus calls the apostles and He sends them out two by two. This is an important point that we just don't want to gloss over. I heard it said before of ministers, there are those who were sent and others who just went. Right? There are those who are sent, and others who just went. Now the prophets of the Old Testament were called and sent. We can look to one example quickly of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say this to the people. And the Lord proceeds to tell Isaiah what he is to say. But we see this throughout the Old Testament. We also see this in the New Testament with the calling and sending of Paul. I mean, the very word apostle, brothers and sisters, means someone sent. And so we see that the, the pattern of ministry in the New Testament, right, and throughout the Bible is a calling and a sending. Right? No one decides for themselves, hey, I'm going to be a prophet, or I'm going to be an apostle, or... I'm going to be an elder, right? Or I'm just going to start my own church, right? These are callings and we don't qualify ourselves to be an apostle or a prophet or an elder. It is God who does that, right? But today there are many prominent figures out there who simply start up their own churches, right? They have not been sent. They simply just went. And this is very dangerous First of all, because we see this is not the biblical pattern. We don't appoint ourselves to ministry. Secondly, though, this is a lot of times how abuse happens in church, all types of abuse. Now, I'm not saying that if you follow the biblical pattern, there will never be, never be abuse in the church. But what I'm saying is when you, one man just starts up his own church, there's a lot of power and authority, and that power and authority can oftentimes lead to corruption and he can start to lord over the church and be a little pope over the church. right? And this is why it's important to see that Jesus sends the apostles out today two by two. Now, I'm not saying, and I don't think, the reason why he's sending them out two by two is for this reason. But I think that we can make application in seeing that Jesus sends them out two by two. right? This is the reason why it's important, I think, to have a plurality of elders. Right? I know that always can't be the case, but it ought to be the goal to have a plurality of elders so that we lessen the chances for abuse in the church, right? Because there are more, there's more than one person there looking over the flock. Now with that being said, the reason that Jesus does send them out two by two is because he is observing Old Testament law. Right? In Deuteronomy chapter 19 verse 15, we're told this. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. And so Jesus is sending them out two by two to establish with those whom they are speaking that the testimony that they are giving about Jesus is true. You see, when they are going out two by two, and saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, and explaining how the kingdom of God is now present, it becomes a much more persuasive argument for the Jewish hearer when he is being told this by two apostles and not just one. And so we see here initially Jesus calls these apostles, He sends these apostles, He sends them out two by two in order to establish their testimony, and now we get to what Jesus tells them to take. And it's interesting that he actually spends more time telling them what not to take than telling them what to take. Right? He says, don't take bread. Which means you're not to bring food along with you on your journey. He says, don't bring a bag. Which means there's, they can't bring anything. They can't carry any supplies with them when they go. He tells them, don't bring any money. Which means they can't buy anything when they're out. He tells them, don't take two tunics or two coats. Now, this is important because if you were traveling and you were to stay outside, that second coat would have been very useful because you could have used it as a a blanket or used it as a pillow. But Jesus is telling them, don't take any of this. All you are to take is a staff, your sandals, one tunic, and the belt that you're wearing. Now, if anyone has been reading in their own personal study time, uh, the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Luke, you will see that on these parallel accounts, it actually differs significantly. Okay? It differs significantly. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 9, Matthew records that Jesus says this, Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics, or sandals, or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. So what's the difference in the accounts here? Matthew says you're not to take a staff or you're not to take sandals. But Mark tells us they're to take both of those things. In Luke's account, chapter 9, verse 3, And Jesus said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. You see here, Luke records like Matthew that they were not to take a staff. And so why, we have to ask, why are Matthew and Luke's accounts different? And I think when we come to understand the reason or the purpose for what Jesus is saying, we will be able to harmonize the accounts and see that there really is no difference at all. And so the reason that Jesus is telling them not to take certain things is because he is teaching them to surrender to him in every step. Jesus is teaching them to trust in his providence. He's teaching them to rely on the sender for everything they need, every step of the way. And so what Jesus is saying in all three accounts to them is, go as you are. All right? Jesus is saying, go as you are. But in Matthew, in Luke's accounts, they're focusing on Jesus saying, don't go back and get a staff. Don't go back and get a new tunic. Don't go back and get a new sandals. Jesus is saying, I will take care of you at every turn and supply your need. And with this in mind, that's why Luke and Matthew's account can say no staff. And why Matthew's account can say no, no sandals. It's not that they weren't to bring a sandal and staff. But they're focusing on, they are not to go back and go grab a new pair of sandals or a different staff or a second tunic. And this is why Mark then, there's no issue with what Mark's saying, because Mark is simply telling them, take what you have on you. But both of them are focusing on the immediacy of the journey. Leave now. It's time to go. And just simply depend on God. And so we have to ask them, why are they just to take what they have on? Why no food? Why no money? Well, as we said, one, they are to be trusting in the providence of God. They are messengers of God, sent by God, and so they are to trust that He will take care of them. Secondly, as they go out ministering to people, proclaiming the Gospel, and casting out demons, the people that they were ministering to were supposed to take care of them. Right? Here we have that principle of the laborer deserving of his wages. Right As he ministers to the people, as he serves the people, they are to make sure that he has his needs taken care of. This then leads us To the second point, which is what the twelve then, what were to do? What the twelve were to do? What Jesus, what does Jesus tell the apostles there to do as they are traveling and proclaiming the gospel? Well, he says in verse 10, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. We see that as the apostles went around preaching, they were to enter the house and stay with those who received the gospel. Jesus is saying that you are to go and stay with whomever receives the gospel and you are to stay in that home until you leave that place. This is why Jesus says, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart. So what he's saying to the apostles is you're not to go into one house and then you get a better offer from a wealthy family who can provide you better amenities and then you leave the first family and go to the second. Right? They're to be trusting in the providence of God. They're not to try to be bettering their situation. Right? They are simply on a journey to proclaim the Gospel, not to enjoy the comforts and benefits of the earth. Right? And so Jesus does not want them to be distracted in any way, but their sole focus is to be on gospel ministry and nothing else. But what are we told happens if the word is not received? If people reject them and don't listen to the gospel? Well, we're told that they are to shake off the dust of their feet. And in doing it, it serves as a symbol of judgment upon the people. Now there are two things I want to highlight here under this second point. The first is why it would be such a grave thing as to reject the apostles that they would then shake off their feet as a symbol of judgment upon the people. Right? We have to understand first that Jesus calls the apostles and He sends them out with His authority to preach and to cast out demons. And so Jesus commissions them to go out in His name and so to reject the apostles, to reject those who are sent, is to reject the sender. Right? To reject the apostles is to reject Christ Jesus Himself. And this is actually something that was well understood in the first century. And we have a great example of this in Matthew's Gospel. And so I ask that you would turn with me there to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, and we'll look at starting in verse 5. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. We read this. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. roof. But only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. Another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. So here, pay attention, Jesus speaks to the centurion. Now turn with me to Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 1. And this is what we hear now. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about this, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go and he goes. And another, come and he comes. And to my servant, do this. And he does it. Now what's the difference here, brothers and sisters? In Matthew's account, Jesus is speaking to the centurion. In Luke's account, He is not speaking to the centurion, but rather He is speaking to the servants of the centurion Whom the centurion sends on his behalf. And still, there is no contradiction. This is why Matthew can write that the centurion himself was the one who spoke to Jesus. Because as we see, as we see, to speak to the centurion's servants who were commissioned for the task in his name was the same thing as Jesus speaking to the centurion himself. Right? To receive the centurion's servants was to receive the centurion. Which is why it is such a grave and terrible sin to reject the apostles. Because people were not just rejecting men, they were rejecting the God-man. Right? And rejecting the apostles and not giving them a place to stay and food to eat and water to drink. They were saying no to Jesus. And we see this in Matthew's Gospel. Turn with me once more to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25 starting in verse 41. Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 41. And this is what we read. Then He will say to those on His left, Depart from Me, you cursed into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave Me no food. I was thirsty and you gave Me no drink. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. I want you to see something here, brothers and sisters, that's important. These people who did not give food, these people who did not give drink, right? We are describing something that they did not do that they should have done. Right? Jesus isn't saying they are condemned because they committed adultery or they committed murder. But what Jesus is pointing out is their condemnation based on the fact of they omitted to do things. Right? These were sins of omission. They, it was neglect of duty. And this ought to teach us all here something today. And that is, as Christians, we have responsibilities. Right? The Christian life is full of responsibilities. And one of the greatest responsibilities of the Christian life is to represent Christ well. One of the greatest responsibilities of the Christian life is to represent Christ well. Imagine the great damage we do to the church when a brother or sister who is in need comes up to us, and as James it tells us, right, we say, and we have all that we need. And a brother comes up to us in need, and we say, "Go, peace be with you, be warm and be filled." But we don't give their bodies what they need, right? When we do that, we do great. Harm to the church, a great disservice to Christ. And in fact, we deny Christ by our actions. You see, Christ came serving and giving. He served the church. He gave His life up for the church. And we are to reflect that in all facets of our life. In our marriage, in our home, with our children, at work, in church, with your church family, with your friends. This is why Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, let each of you look not only to your own interests, but the interests of others. Right? He says, count others more significant than yourselves. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This is why the author to the Hebrews says, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You see, these commands are your responsibilities as Christians. Understanding that when you serve your neighbor, you are serving God. When you show hospitality to your brother and sister, you are showing hospitality to God. When you serve and give to your church, you are serving and giving to God. And this is a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. I know it's not easy because we are prone to kind of live in our own little bubbles, aren't we? To live in our own little cocoons, only worried about ourselves and our families. But this is not the mind of Christ that we are called to share. And so all of us ought to be thinking more about this, right? What am I not doing that I need to be doing because my neglect of doing is sin? Right? We have to ask, how can I serve and give of myself to my church, to my neighbor, to my brothers and sisters in a way that I am not doing, that I ought to be doing, and that represents Christ well? We ought to be thinking more about that. Now the second point that I want us to see is what this shaking off of the feet entails. Now, this was a common Jewish practice. As the Jews would leave a Gentile city, they would shake off the dust of their feet to demonstrate right, that they were removing uncleanness from the Gentiles before they went back to their Jewish homes. But in doing this, what they were symbolizing was that the Gentiles were outside the people of God. Right? They were outside the love of God, separated from God, outside the promises of God, outside the covenant of God. And in fact, we see Paul picks us up and does this in the book of Acts at two occasions. And in fact, he actually does it towards Jews, though. In Acts chapter 13, verse 51, Jewish men and women are stirring up controversy because Paul is describing to them that because the Jews have rejected Christ, the gospel is now going to go forth to the Gentiles. And we're told that these Jewish men and women drove Paul out of the district and so we read then in verse 51 but paul and all those with him shook off the dust from their feet against them another time this happens in uh, acts chapter 18 as paul's in corinth and he's preaching to the jews that jesus is the messiah and they're they revile paul and so we're told that paul shakes out his garments and he says to them in verse 6 your blood be upon your own heads i am innocent and so we see that the shaking off of the feet was a prophetic sign of judgment against the people who rejected Christ. Right, The shaking off of the feet was a prophetic sign of judgment against those who rejected Jesus. It was a sign of the condemnation that they were to receive when Christ returned again to judge them in all righteousness. What's also noteworthy then about this symbolic act is that is being done to the Jews. where Jesus is telling the apostles to do this to Jews. Those who took pride in being Abraham's descendants and being a part of the Old Covenant, now the apostles are told to go, and if the Jews reject them, to wipe off their feet before they left as a sign of judgment against them, now saying to the Jews, that you are outside the people of God, that you do not belong to the New Covenant, that you do not belong to the Covenant of Grace which God now extends to all people, right, Jew and Gentile alike, through faith in Christ, who become the true children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Jesus tells them to do this because they rejected the Word, they rejected the preaching. They rejected the Kingdom of God. That is what they were being offered, the Kingdom of God, and they rejected it. And so this then leads us to our third and final point this morning, which is what the twelve were to say what the twelve were to say. Starting in verse 12, then we read this. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Jesus, we see, sends out the apostles for the purpose primarily of proclaiming the word. They are to say the same thing that Jesus said in his ministry, right? Uh, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now we're also told in verse 7 that he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And in verse 13 we're told that, he, that they cast out demons and they healed the sick. Now I want us to see that this is one major difference right, in the ministry of the apostles and the in the ministry of elders and teachers today. Right? The ministry of the apostles was unique in many ways. And this is one of those ways. Because we see that they were given authority for a time to perform these miraculous works in order to verify to those whom they were proclaiming the word to that they were sent by God as agents of divine revelation. Okay? Do we understand that? This was given to the apostles for a time in order to verify to those whom they were proclaiming the message to that they were sent by God as agents of divine revelation. And so this is why these miraculous works have ceased today. Because the church was built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, and they established the church through their ministry and their works. But now that the Word of God is complete, now that the foundation has been laid, these works are no longer necessary. Ministers today have no new revelation to give you and so there is no miraculous works we need to demonstrate to show you and verify the divine revelation that we have. Right, The foundation has already been laid. So ministers today are simply building upon it through the preaching of the Word. And so we simply proclaim what is also what has already been testified to by the apostles and those who were with them. But in saying this, I don't want us to Uh, look at this as a bad thing. Like, Jesus sent out the apostles, right? These people got apostles. They got infallible preaching and they got these miraculous works and all we get are regular old guys standing up before us preaching a regular old sermon. Right? Because God today still speaks to his people through the preached word. Right? God spoke to people through the prophets. He spoke to people through his apostles. God spoke to people through Jesus Christ. And today he is still speaking to his people through ministers. This is why we ought to wake up in the morning, right, with hearts burning to come to church and to hear the word of God proclaimed. Right, because Heinrich Bullinger in the uh, second Helvetic confession which was the confession of the Reformed Swiss and Hungarian and Polish churches, this is what he affirms, and which we ought to also affirm. He says this, that we believe today, when the Word of God is proclaimed in the church by preachers who have been legitimately called, then the very Word of God itself is proclaimed and received by the faithful the very Word of God itself comes to us this morning. When the preacher preaches faithfully, it is God speaking to the congregation. Now, before you get angry with me, I'm not saying that my sermon is the Word of God. I'm not saying that we ought to put it in Scripture. But what I'm saying is that God today speaks to His church through ministers, in a powerful and authoritative way still today. Believe me, if I knew I was waking up just to come hear me preach, I wouldn't be excited either. But when we understand that we are coming to hear the Word of God and the very Word of God Himself as He speaks to us through the Word, we ought to have fire in our bellies to want to come and to get up and to be here, to hear God speak to us this day. And the message that they were sent to proclaim was, repent. It was a message of repentance. Now, this doesn't mean because it only says repentance that they didn't preach the necessity of faith. right? Because repentance assumes the necessity of faith. right? What are we repenting of? It's a repentance for the remission of sins. Why do we need our sins remitted? Because we have sinned against an Almighty God. And so then the question is, like the Philippian jailer, when he is confronted by the guilt of his sin, what must I do to be saved? And what does Paul say to him? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So you can't have faith without repentance. And you can't have repentance without faith. But we see here that in Acts 11, verse 21, Paul reminds the elders that he testified both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. So we have to see that repentance, this Greek word in the New Testament, denotes a changing of the mind. A changing of the mind. But that only occurs when we see our sin differently. right? That only occurs when we see our sin differently and we hate the sin that we once loved and then we turn away from our evil ways and we turn toward God, as Paul says. It's repentance toward God, right? It's the changing of our mind that causes us to turn away from evil and toward God that He might forgive us our sins. You see, our repentance has both an inward and outward reaction to the changing of our mind. An outward reformation is not sufficient, right? The Pharisees were probably the most externally pure people on the face of the world. And yet, what does Jesus say to them? Understanding that there was no inward change. There was no sorrow over sin. There was no turning to God in faith. He calls them whitewashed tombs. That they were beautiful and clean on the outside, but inside they were full of dead man's bones and all sorts of uncleanness. Now, we don't know what's in man's heart today. right? But That is why we are to proclaim repentance and faith in Christ. And so the question then is, how do you respond to that message? When the gospel is proclaimed here each week, or do you receive it? When you hear the law preached, do you repent of your sin? Perhaps seeing your lack of care for your brother and sister, your lack of hospitality, your lack of concern to come here and hear the word on Sunday morning. And then do you grow and increase in faith? Or do you allow the message just to go in one ear and out the other, having no effect on you inwardly or outwardly in any manner of your life. You see, so often in the Old Testament, when the law was read to the people, what did we see happen? They would tear their garments, right? What that was, was a a public expression of the grief and sorrow that they should have had in their hearts. And so I ask, when you hear the law read today, when you hear about your sin, when you are convicted of it, do you have grief and sorrow over your sin? Now, many though, who tore their clothes never had a true change of mind because they never uh, turned away from evil and toward God, which repentance truly is. But this is also why today that we don't tear our own clothes when we sin. Because the Lord, speaking through the prophet Joel, tells us in chapter 2, verse 13, Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so we have to ask, has your heart been torn? Have you been given a new heart by the gracious and merciful Lord? Right? Have you been cleansed and washed by the blood of Christ? Have you by God's grace had the change of mind which is expressed in contrition over your sin and confession of sin? Have you turned from your evil ways and toward God in belief in Christ? Because if you have, you can walk out of here today knowing that you have forgiveness of sin, that you have fellowship with Almighty God, that you have eternal life. And as a result, we have to strive to represent Christ well in all areas of our life. And we don't strive to do this for our salvation, for salvation is a gift. But we strive to do this out of gratitude for that salvation that God has given to us. Because this is why Christ came and preached. This is why He sent the apostles to preach and to perform these miraculous works. This is why He gives us ministers today to preach. So that by the power of God, minds would be changed. Right? That faith would be established. That a people would be gathered. That all would be gathered to God. All those who repent and believe. Please bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. For... Your wisdom amazes us, Father. We ask You this day, Lord, that You would apply the teaching of Your Word today, that You would cause us uh, to see the truth of Your Word, that, Father, we would live in a manner that represents You well, that we would be those who Proclaim a message in a church that proclaims the message of repentance and faith in Christ, which is necessary for salvation. And yet, Father, we rely on you for faith and repentance, for they are gifts of God. And so we pray that you would strengthen us, that you would remind us of our own need to repent and our own need to trust in you every day as we remind ourselves of your glorious gospel. So, Father, we come before You and pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.